Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On this episode, we're going to talk about one of my first experiences responding to an emergency as a nursing student. Coincidentally, I had just gotten the neuro lecture right before I encountered a true neuro emergency. I also got to see how important it is to trust your intuition and advocate for the patient, even if your concerns are dismissed initially. Speaking up saved this patient's life. So let me tell you about sweet Mrs. Johnson. That wasn't her name, obviously, HIPAA, but that's what I will refer to her as for this episode. I was in my third semester of med surge clinicals, and we were on the neuro med surge floor. The nurse I was assigned to, we'll call her Pam, was not the warm and fuzzy type. In fact, the other nursing students would specifically ask not to have her because she was kind of rude and condescending towards the students and a bit lazy and didn't want to help with anything. But I guess since I never asked not to be with Pam, I got assigned to her once again on this clinical day. Now, this is almost 20 years ago, so I was barely 18 years old and I did not have the confidence in my nursing knowledge and assessment skills that I have today. But my drive to do is right, no matter what the cost, has been there since birth. So I guess I had that in my favor. Our patient, Mrs. Johnson, a dear elderly lady, was a post-op craniotomy. I couldn't tell you what surgery she had, but I remember her cute little half-shaved head and staple line and her pink floral old lady house coat that she wore over top of her hospital gown. I took her morning vitals around like 7.30 and performed my morning assessment. All her vitals were within normal limits, heart rate in the 80s, Blood pressure 120 over 70-ish, respiratory rate 14. Her neuroassessment was unremarkable with equal pupils and strength bilaterally. She was alert and oriented and told me all about her grandkids and how much they liked her cooking. I got up to the chair to eat her breakfast and she just picked at it and said she had a headache and wanted to get back to bed for a nap. She didn't want any pain medication, just said she felt tired and thought she needed to sleep. So around 8.30 after her morning meds, I put her back to bed. I peeked in and checked on her at 9, and again at 10, and close to 11, she was still sleeping, so I decided it was time to wake her up and get her cleaned up and ready for lunch. But when I tried to wake her, she just moaned. So I went to tell Pam, and she said, Honey, she is 80 years old, and she just had brain surgery. Let her sleep, for God's sakes. I was like, Pam, you don't want to just come look at her? She wasn't like this earlier. She said, meal trays don't come till noon. Let her sleep till then, and then you can wake her up. I said, okay, well, I'm just going to check her vital signs just in case. Pam said, whatever you want to do, honey. So I rechecked Mrs. Johnson's vitals, and her heart rate was 54 now, and her blood pressure was 175 over 35. And when I tried to count her respiratory rate, it was super irregular with long pauses and little gasps. 
definitely having some periods of apnea. So I tried to check your pupils again and they weren't as brisk as they were in the morning. And even with all of that stimulation, she really didn't wake up. So I run and get Pam and I told her the new vital signs and she said, you need to calm down, honey. A lot of elderly patients get a little bradycardic in their sleep and 54 isn't even that low. And the doctor's blood pressure parameters are to keep the BP less than 180 systolic. I am not going to call the neurosurgeon about a blood pressure of 175. I said, but what about her pulse pressure? It's much wider than before. She wasn't impressed. And then it was clear that I was getting annoying to her, but I kept going. But the way she was breathing was very regular and her pupils weren't as brisk as they were this morning. She responded. Now, honey, have you never seen an old person sleep? She probably just has undiagnosed sleep apnea. And think about the lighting in the room at 7 a.m. when you first heard her <clears throat> until now. The pupils react differently when it's brighter in the room. You're making a big deal out of nothing. But it didn't feel like nothing to me. I understood all of her rationales for why what I thought was concerning might not be. But I just didn't feel okay with how sleepy she was. I told Pam, you don't want to just come look at her to see if it's worth calling the neurosurgeon? She said, I'm still passing my morning meds, and I'll come see her when I get to her. Now, this is back in 2003, and rapid response teams weren't a thing at the time. Otherwise, I probably would have just called a rapid response. But I went to who I knew could help me. I found my nursing professor and told her I thought I needed to call the neurosurgeon about my patient. She helped me find the doctor's number and reviewed the S-bar with me, so I felt ready to make the call. So I called the number and the operating room nurse answered and she said the neurosurgeon was in surgery and asked if it was an emergency. I said, well, I think so. She said, okay, I'm putting you on speakerphone. Speakerphone? <laughs> Way to add to the stress of calling the neurosurgeon. Now I'm on speakerphone for the whole operating room to hear me? <sighs> I proceeded. Hi, Dr. Neurosurgeon, this is Sarah, the nursing student taking care of Mrs. Johnson in 6554. She's two days post-craniotomy, and this morning she was talkative with normal vital signs, and then she got a headache and asked to lay down for a nap. And now I can barely wake her up, and her vitals are different than this morning. Her heart rate is 54, and her blood pressure is 175 over 35, and her breathing pattern is very irregular. I think your pupils are a little slower to react than they were this morning. I'm new to caring for patients after brain surgery, and so I asked the nurse, and she thought it wasn't a big deal, but she is really drowsy. Like, like I can't wake her up. <laughs> and I figured it's worth letting you know. Is there anything that you would like me to do? He said, oh, thanks for letting me know. Has she had any medication that would make her drowsy? I said, no. All she got this morning was a colace and her normal antihypertensives but her systolic blood pressure is actually higher than it was this morning, and she didn't want any pain medication for her headache. He said, Okay, I'm going to order a stat CT for of her head, and I'll come see her after I finish this case. I said, Okay, I'll get her a CT stat. Thank you. My professor let me go with her to CAT scan, and while she was still in the scanner, the CT tech looked at me and said, She has a big old bleed. We need to get her off my CT table and back to the operating room. So, long story short, we ended up taking her back to the OR, where the surgeon was able to repair the bleeder. When I returned to CT to tell Pam about Mrs. Johnson's brain bleed, she was just like, 
Okay, thanks. And that's it. But I didn't need her recognition or anyone else's. I was honestly much more worried for Mrs. Johnson than anything else. And I wish that I had went back and evaluated her earlier rather than letting her sleep for two hours. And I played the story over and over again in my head, trying to remember her breathing pattern and pupils and, and kicking myself for not even assessing for posturing. I learned so much that day, not just about increased intracranial pressure and how it presents, but also about the valuable role the nurse plays in monitoring patients, how important it is to know the patient's baselines. You can actually detect changes and that it's always worth the risk of embarrassing yourself to speak up when you're concerned about a patient. So let's take some time to break down what exactly happened with Mrs. Johnson and how her signs and symptoms correlate with increased intracranial pressure. You may remember from nursing school the Monroe Kelly Doctrine, which basically says that the skull of an adult is a closed vault that contains the brain matter itself, the blood flowing through the brain, and the cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, to cushion it all. Problem is, each component is allotted a set amount of real estate in the skull. And since the skull is a fixed size, if one of those components starts to increase in size, the other two components are forced to decrease, be compressed, or herniate into the brainstem. So if the brain, blood volume, or CSF grows in volume, then the patient will have increased intracranial pressure. If the intracranial pressure is too high for too long, this can lead to brain death and ultimately loss of life. For example, when someone has a brain injury and the brain starts to swell, then that means there's less room for adequate blood flow to the brain and less space for CSF. Or like in Mrs. Johnson's case, she had blood leaking into the space outside of the blood vessels, where it's supposed to be, so that leaves less space for CSF and for the brain to occupy. Additionally, when blood is touching the brain tissue directly, it really irritates the brain tissue, and in response, the brain starts to swell. So now you have blood taking up more space and brain swelling taking up more space, so this is double bad for intracranial pressure. If our patient were to develop increased intracranial pressure, what would be some of the early signs that we could detect? Well, for awake patients, they could have projectile vomiting, often without nausea. They just start puking across the room. Or headache is another early sign, but the telltale sign of increased ICP is altered mental status. As the ICP increases, the patient will become more and more drowsy and ultimately unresponsive. Eventually, you'll likely see pupil changes, which will vary depending on what kind of injury you have, but any alteration from what you know to be baseline is worth letting someone know. The key is knowing the baseline. I had assessed Mrs. Johnson's pupils in the morning, and they were equal and reacted briskly to light, but after Mrs. Johnson developed bleeding to her brain, they were very slow to react, almost non-reactive. But pupillary changes are one of the last things that you'll see. So don't wait for blown or non-reactive pupils to start thinking something's up. There are a couple more things that you might see that could indicate increased ICP. You might have heard it called Cushing's Triad. Cushing's Triad has nothing to do with Cushing's Syndrome. That's a totally separate thing. But Cushing's Triad is a set of three assessment findings that when presenting together should make you think increased ICP. 
and Mrs. Johnson had all three. The first is hypertension, but not just any hypertension. Hypertension with a widened pulse pressure, which means the systolic is getting higher and the diastolic is dropping, making the gap between the two wider and wider. The second is bradycardia, or heart rate less than 60 beats per minute, and the third is irregular breathing. When I rechecked Mrs. Johnson's vitals, her systolic BP had gone up by almost 60 millimeters of mercury, despite the morning antihypertensives that I had administered, and her heart rate was 30 beats slower than what had been with her morning vitals. And when I tried to count her respirations, there was no pattern to her breathing, and she was having some long pauses. That, my friends, is classic Cushing's triad. You also might have heard it called Cushing's reflex or Cushing's response, but I like to remember it as a triad, so I remember that the symptoms when presenting together should make me think increased ICP every time. Let's break down each component of the triad in the order in which they present. The first phase is hypertension. As the intracranial pressure increases, the body wants to ensure that the brain still gets blood flow, also known as cerebral perfusion. So it compensates by increasing the blood pressure to overcome the pressure inside the skull. Initially, the heart rate will also increase, the body's trying to increase cardiac output, but then eventually you'll see that turn to bradycardia as phase two kicks in. The pathophysiology of phase two is debatable. So either the baroreceptors in the aorta say, hold up, this BP is too high, and they activate the parasympathetic nervous system to calm things down a bit, leading to vagal stimulation and ultimately bradycardia. Or the compression of the brain to the spinal cord stimulates the vagus nerve, also leading to bradycardia. Either way, the takeaway is bradycardia is a bad sign. Often that herniation is imminent or already occurring. And finally, phase three is when the funky neurobreathing starts. The brainstem controls your breathing rate and pattern, and when it's being squished, it kind of does a poor job of controlling respirations. So, we have talked about Mrs. Johnson's headache, then altered mental status, her vital signs reflecting Cushing's triad, and her pupil changes. What we haven't talked about yet is posturing. And I'll be honest, I didn't even think to check for it. I was so early in my career that it didn't even cross my mind until after the fact. But now, I look for it every time I have an unarousable patient. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, please Google it for a visual, <clears throat> since you can't see what my hands are doing right now trying to demonstrate. So, when brain injury is present, the extremities could start to move in a predictable posture. Decorticate posturing, which indicates that the injury is occurring higher in the midbrain, is when the extremities kind of curl inwards towards the core. Keyword being core, like decorticate. So, the arms move in towards the chest and the feet kind of point inwards too. Decerebrate or decerebrate, I've heard it said both ways, posturing is even worse as it indicates that the injury has progressed through to the brainstem, and that is what you would see with the extremities kind of pointing out. The hands externally rotate and curl, and the feet point downward, kind of like a ballerina. Think extend. The word decerebrate has more ease in it than decorticate, 
So think E for extend. <laughs> the arms and legs extend. And this is a very, very ominous sign. So remember, you don't have to wait for posturing or Cushing's triad to speak up. Start advocating for your patient when they have the first sign of altered mentation. Unless you work on a neuro floor, brain bleed is not a common complication for most patients' hospital stays. I'd say about a third of the rapid responses I go to are called for unresponsiveness, but a very minuscule percentage of those are from bleeding into the brain. There are so many things that I tried to rule out when the nurse tells me he was fine and now we can't wake him up. Things like hypoglycemia, too much opioid or benzodiazepines on board, hypotension, bradycardia, electrolyte imbalance, hypoxia, hypercapnia, acidosis, sepsis, stroke. I could keep going. But I get a history while I'm assessing the patient and getting them on my monitor and usually I can narrow the source down to one or two likely reasons for the altered mental status. And by the time I get the whole story from the nurse, I have kind of a good direction for what to rule out. My point is, you don't need to get a stat CT every time your patient has a headache. And you don't need to be afraid that your patient requesting a nap might have increased intracranial pressure. This is a very rare thing. But don't ever let yourself swing the other direction in the spectrum and become apathetic like Nurse Pam, who downplayed every symptom. You know, her rationales were all correct. Patients are sleepy after surgery. The elderly do breathe funny sometimes when they sleep, and their heart rate can drop a little. A blood pressure of 175 is not that high, and pupils do react slower when ambient light in the room is brighter. She knew all the same information that I did about increased ICP, but since brain bleeds rarely happen, but sleepy, post-surgical, funny-breathing elderly patients that sometimes get bradycardic happen all the time, I can see why she had learned to write that off as nothing. But here's what I had that she didn't. I was with the patient. I don't totally understand nursing intuition, but I do know that I have to be present with the patient for it to start kicking in. For example, when I worked in the ER, we would get EMS radio reports all the time. And I would have all the data about the patient's vital signs and symptoms and history. But it wasn't until I could see the patient with my own eyes that I could get a feel for how sick they really were. But she hadn't even stepped foot into the room yet. So I would hope that if she had actually seen Mrs. Johnson, that her nursing intuition would have kicked in and started alarming, and that would have overridden all of her rationales, and she would have the same sense of urgency that I had. But I guess we'll never know. The takeaway is, sometimes when you're informing the doctor or respiratory therapist or whatever other member of the interdisciplinary team that you're collaborating with, that something is wrong or you're, you're worried or concerned about something, it's hard to fully convey that feeling that you're getting, you know, that something is wrong to a person who doesn't see what you're seeing. If you don't feel like your point's getting across, just ask them to come see the patient for themselves. I've had many doctors thank me for being so pushy after they arrived at the bedside and realized how sick the patient truly was. Think about it this way. If the nurse tech called you and said they're concerned about another one of your patients, wouldn't you be grateful that they did? Even if it interrupted what you were doing, I know I would. I would say thank you so much for letting me know. 
I'll be right there to see what's wrong. I would never be annoyed that they notified me of a change, even if it turned out to be no big deal. I'd want to confirm that with my own eyes. And I would never make them feel bad for calling me, even if it wasn't a true emergency. We're all on the same team and we need each other to provide the best care to our patients. So if the person on the other end of the phone is giving you a hard time, well, that's it, their issue, not yours. It's called patient advocacy. It's what you're called to do. It's what you're paid to do. And as long as you're respectful, you should never feel bad for interrupting someone when you're worried about your patient. So let's take a minute to review. Increased intracranial pressure occurs because one or more of the contents inside the skull is taking up more than its allotted amount of space in the cranium. Some of the early signs of increased ICP are headache, vomiting, altered mental status, usually lethargy. But as things progress, you can start to see an increased blood pressure and as the body tries to overcome the intracranial pressure to still perfuse the brain. Then bradycardia as the vagus nerve is stimulated, then an irregular breathing pattern. We call these three symptoms when presenting simultaneously Cushing's triad. You may also see pupillary changes. Either the pupils are pinpoint or huge or different sizes called anisocoria, or they're slow or non-reactive. And make sure you pull back the covers and assess for posturing. Either the arms and legs are curled inward in a decorticate posture or extended, extended outward in a decerebrate posture. All the symptoms I just listed warrant a concerned call to the provider or an activation of the rapid response team. Don't be afraid to speak up. Your patient can't, and they're counting on you to be their advocate. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.